Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. We have a great episode for y'all. We speak with Emily Eby, and she is a senior elections protection attorney and policy counsel at the Texas Civil Rights Project. We asked Emily to come speak to us and share with y'all about the history of voting in Texas. She is so knowledgeable around this issue around the history of voting in our state and some of these touch points that really changed the state of voting in Texas, specifically Shelby County versus Holder, and then also Senate Bill 1, which recently passed in the last legislative session. So we learned a lot from her, but she is such a fun personality. She educated us in a edutaining manner. So we think y'all are going to love this episode. Nicole, what other fun things did we get from Emily? Well, we discovered Emily, maybe I'll jump back a little. We discovered Emily because we both watched a webinar about the history of voting in Texas and both thought, oh my gosh, we need to have her on. Let's do elections next. And we definitely ought to include a segment about the history of voting in Texas, which of course includes the history of voting in the US, right? It's very, it's more broad than just our state, but definitely gets into the the nuggets of our state. And I just co-sign everything you said. She's such a fun guest. It may not seem like it's a fun subject, but somehow she makes it really interesting and entertaining. So yes, listen to this one. I think you will enjoy Emily. And I think you'll also then want to tune in to the Texas Civil Rights Project. Mm -hmm. She has great information along with the organization. So listen to this and then go learn more. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. We are super excited to be speaking with Emily E.B. here today. She is with the Texas Civil Rights Project, and she is going to help us understand the history of voting in Texas, because it's hard to understand where we're going until we look back and say, where do we actually come from? So thanks for joining us, Emily. It's good to have you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you all about it. Yeah, before we get into Texas Civil Rights Project and voting and all that good stuff, we would love to learn a little bit more about you. Are you from Texas? Like, what was your upbringing like? Yes, I was born and raised in Texas, have lived here all of my life except undergrad, and I will forever be atoning for going undergrad in Oklahoma. Did you go to OU? I did go to OU, and then I went to UT Law School, so I'm everyone's enemy. Oh, no. As we should be. I was born in Houston and raised in North Texas in Wichita Falls, so I really got the best of Texas in Houston and the not-so-best of Texas. I grew up in a very—Wichita Falls is not the most progressive area in the state of Texas, so—and I went to law school in Austin, have lived in Austin with a little bit of Houston in there ever since, and I really love Texas. I am very obnoxious about it. I have, like— the other day I was wearing these shorts that had tex- like little Texases on them. And this guy out in public went, God bless Texas. And I was like, yeah, sometimes. And then I was like, I'm wearing the shorts. <laughs> I should. So that's like kind of my relationship with Texas is like, yes, I love it. And also we got to do better here. <laughs> 
we got to do better. There's a lot of us here too. So yeah, yeah. we appreciate the work that you're doing. What made you want to go to law school? Uh, I got an English degree and I didn't have a backup plan. I didn't want to be a teacher because my mom told me not to be a teacher because she's a teacher. Mm. And I was like, writing sounds great, but I would also love health insurance. I do not recommend that anybody go to law school on that basis. It was not the best. And I took all my first year courses and did okay, but mostly was like, what is the point of learning property law? Like, I'm not helping anybody. They have to come to me and pay me if I'm going to help them with their contracts or, you know, any of these things I'm learning. And then my first semester of my second year, I took Mimi Marziani's voting rights class. She is the president of Texas Civil Rights Project. I did just follow her around until she would let me do voting rights stuff professionally. But I was like, please let me. But it was my light bulb moment. It was the time where I said, oh, my God, this is the time that you're taking what you learn in law school and giving it to people to empower themselves. I'm not just like a dragon hoarding all the gold and sitting on it and making people come to me. I'm actually learning about the law, giving it to people to make it more accessible for them to vote. And then that's how they impact all these other things I've learned about that they don't get a say in. Imagine that was such a relief, that moment where you were like, oh, this does have a purpose that I can actually enjoy because it sounds like it wasn't fulfilling until then. I do not know what I'm going to do with the next two years. Oil and gas? That doesn't sound fun. (laughs) It was very helpful to know, oh, I'm just going to take every voting rights class this school ever offers. And I absolutely did that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. It sounds like you were able to match your passion and your work and you can do things that excite you. I I would imagine. Yeah. So a lot of the work you do with Texas Civil Rights Project is around elections and making sure people have the right to vote and can and that voting is easier. I mean, that is a political thing because voting is all about electing our political representatives. So I'm just curious, what was it like for you growing up regarding politics? Were you from a family that discussed politics or it was like, no, no, we're not going to go there. What was it like around the dinner table? I love my parents very much. They are lovely people. They were hardcore evangelical, remain very like involved in their North Texas church to this day. And everything we talked about was viewed through that lens and not even like a more expansive view of Christianity where there are, you know, you can have people who are you know, a little bit more on the socialist side of what Jesus was saying. And a little, it was very much the like 1980s Ronald Reagan version of Christianity and growing up, realizing some of those things that we talked about didn't quite match, realizing that I'm coming from a more middle-class family, but my parents are friends with more upper-class people, and they're voting against our middle-class interests because their upper-class friends are telling them to, and because you're really ostracized in, in Wichita Falls if you don't vote for all the same people that all your neighbors and the deacons of your church vote for. And it was like a slow process. My former boss at TCRP, Beth Stevens, my like voting rights hero, always says it's amazing that I got radicalized in Oklahoma. Like that's how bad <laughs> Wichita Falls must have been for me to go to college and learn, you know, we're not extending these same privileges to everyone. It really is about preserving power. And it is hard to get people to explain why voter suppression would be good. They figured out a lot of tricks to say, you know, oh, well, we just want elections to be secure, even though elections in Texas are incredibly secure. And, oh, well, we just want to make sure people really want to vote. 
so they get their ID. And that's how we know people really want to vote. But when it comes down to it, it is really hard to get people to explain why voting should be limited to a set group of people who almost always happen to be white. Just one of those crazy coincidences that falls apart as soon as you ask somebody about it. I have ruined more than one Thanksgiving with things like that. But I, yeah, I think it's okay. And now my siblings also help me ruin Thanksgiving by talking about voter <laughs> suppression at the table. So it's yeah. uh, we formed a caucus. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate you sharing that personal story and oh, yeah. the growth journey you've gone through. I can identify with that. I went to Wheaton College, which is a very small liberal arts school, evangelical school. And similarly, I went there. I wouldn't say I got radicalized. Like I think I was already, the wheels were turning. I was like, I don't know. Like, does Jesus really believe this, this agenda? <laughs> and my parents laugh at me. They're like, only you would go to Wheaton and come out progressive. And I was like, well, <laughs> me and like 10 others. So it's all good. <laughs> and those people are friends for life too. You're like, oh, we all get it. Like we all had to watch the same VeggieTales growing up. And now we understand that this one, VeggieTales, was actually about why you should unionize your workplace. But that's another <laughs> podcast for another time. <laughs> oh, yes. I, yeah, that would be a great podcast to dig into. So we'll put that. Put a yeah, pin in that. Put right, a pin Nicole? in that. <laughs> totally, because rack. Claire, we've definitely been searching. We'll have these little offline conversations about like, what could be just a purely entertaining, mindless <laughs> subject? So hmm, maybe this is it. A little yes. re-examination of VeggieTales, and which for me would be a first-time watch. <laughs> oh, oh. It's not a universal recommend, but there's some good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, yeah, a point in my childhood that sticks out, but <laughs> oh, we're getting yeah. a little back on track to the Texas Sorry. Civil Rights Project. <laughs> so how did you, you said that you connected with that group because your professor was the founder of it. Is that right? Mimi is the executive director. We were founded in 1990 as more of a, what we call a direct legal services organization, like legal aid. Somebody comes to us with a case and they can't afford legal representation. And for the first 20 or so years of TCRP, that would be what they did. Over the last five to seven years, TCRP has evolved to be a combination of impact litigation, which is just figuring out a place where the law doesn't reflect what we think it should reflect. The law in practice doesn't reflect constitutional principles or the National Voter Registration Act of you know, 1993 or motor voter law, things like that. And suing on a very specific point to get the law to reflect that, which we've had some success doing even in the really conservative Fifth Circuit, which unfortunately Texas is a part of. We also do a lot of advocacy, pointing out places where Let's say a county elections department doesn't reflect what the actual law of Texas does and going to them and saying, you know, you could make this pro-voter reform right now. It wouldn't cost very much. It's already legal, so you won't get targeted by the state. And we can help you with the legal implementation of this process. A lot of counties in Texas have gone to countywide polling since 2018. I think it's about 40% of the counties that do this program have done it since 2018 when we started trying to peer pressure counties into doing it, which means that people can vote at any polling place on election day as long as their county goes through the process to get that approved. And if there's a long line, you can go to a different polling place with a shorter line. And now about 20, I believe it's 21 million Texans are able to vote at any polling place on election day. 
21 okay. million Texans live in a place where you can vote. Several of those Texans are five-year-olds who cannot actually vote. <laughs> but that's the population breakdown. Very lawyerly of me to correct that. Sorry. <laughs> yes, no, we appreciate it. So just so I understand, countywide polling means that you can vote at any polling location in your county. So during early voting, right? anybody in Texas can vote at any polling location in their county where they're registered. On election day, there are some counties, by default, every Texas county require you to go to your precinct. But Texas has a law where a county can apply and go jump through a bunch of hoops, if you can believe it. And then that early voting accessibility applies on election day also. And that is almost every Texan now lives in a county where you can do that. Okay, so that so yeah. it's special for election day. Correct. I wonder why. Why did they? <laughs> it sounds kind of backwards, right? That you, You're right. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of this is backwards, as we'll uh, get into. It's one of the few things I think there's actually a decent reason for, because counties used to do paper ballots, right? And if I go to vote in my precinct, then I know that Stu Jones, who is my councilman, is going to be on the paper ballot in my precinct. But as more and more counties go to machines, not every Texas county votes on voting machines still, but as more and more counties go to machines, it's a lot easier to auto-populate a ballot that uh. is tailored to you no matter where in the county you're voting. And it's, you know, of course, Texas won't let you easily update with that voting machine. You have to go through the hoops of the process that the statute sets out. But now it's a lot easier for us to do that technologically. So there's a mechanism to do it, actually. I'm having so many light bulbs go off, or just one maybe. But yeah, it's, I didn't really consider the implications of, you know, when I go to vote and they hand me my ballot, what was happening, I guess, in that Behind moment. Behind the scenes right? process. Yeah. Right. But just now your explanation, I'm like, oh, it really is a personalized ballot. It's not the person behind me. It's potentially getting the same one, but maybe not because they right. could be in a different precinct. And I never considered that moment until just now. Right. It's so funny because there's a mix in Texas of like, oh, an actual legitimate reason for something. And oh, they're just trying to keep people from voting. So I, I like to try to tell people about those where I can so that, you know, I feel more credible when I'm like, okay, this is there is no good reason for this. Yes. Yeah, we really appreciate that. I always <laughs> like to ask, you know, I think it should be this way, but why wouldn't it be? And then be like, oh, okay, yes, I get that. Or being like, no, that sounds like nonsense. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we're getting a little bit into some of the rules and some of the history, but can you just give us <laughs> in a few minutes, I know this is like a very long discussion, but the history of voting in Texas and where we've come from since Texas has allowed voting to where we are today. Yeah, I would love to. I'm going to refer back to my notes to make sure I'm not getting any dates wrong. So pardon me if there's a pause. Again, way too lawyerly. I try not to be, I'd be like, I'm a cool lawyer. I'm not a regular lawyer, but uh, <laughs> it still sneaks in. So of course, voting in the United States, rights have expanded. And I think we like to think of voting rights as like points along, along a line, right? You know, oh, only white property owning men could vote. And then, oh, reconstruction. And now black men can also vote. But in reality, it's more of an expanding and contracting circle. And I think there are a lot more points throughout that the history that I certainly, as like a white lady who grew up in Texas, did not always think about. And so, of course, you know, property, white property owning men in 1787, before Texas was a state, were given the right to vote. And then 
1870, black men given the right to vote. And then in Reconstruction, they sold out Rutherford B. Hayes, forever my least favorite president, which is a very wonky least favorite president to have. (laughs) He sold out the South to preserve his power. He said, if you'll elect me as the next president, I will end Reconstruction in the South. So people who were, the Union soldiers were still here in 1870, five years after the end of the Civil War, defending the right to vote. There are pictures of Black people in East Texas going to the polls and a line of Union soldiers standing in front of them. And Jim Crow was really only, those laws were really only enabled when Rutherford Hayes pulled the Union troops out of the South in exchange for the votes of Southerners and the political power that he got. And, you know, 1870 was a long time ago, but voter suppression never stops being about preserving power. Any official can do it. Any like it happens from all sides that folks want to preserve their power. And of course, there are good people all over the place who genuinely want people to vote. But I think a lot of the most evil things have come from people trying to preserve their power. So, of course, 1920, white women got the right to vote. But indigenous people didn't get the right to vote in the United States until 1924 in federal elections. And in some states, they did not get the right to vote until 1962, even though this is their land that we live on. And in 1943, Chinese American immigrants were given the right to vote. 1965, of course, is the Voting Rights Act, where Texan LBJ signed into law the federal protections for Black people to vote for BIPOC communities were really meaningfully protected in 1965. And, you know, young people got the right to vote in the 70s, people 18 to 21, the voting age was lowered. And there were a couple other like little wonky things in there. But the next real like voting rights change was to me in 2013, when the Supreme Court heard Shelby County versus Holder. The facts of the case are kind of beyond the scope of what we're talking about right now, I think. But essentially, Chief Justice John Roberts said in 2013, you know what, this formula we used to have that was in the Voting Rights Act that protected states where there was a history of voter suppression is outdated. Racist voter suppression is basically over, says John Roberts. And he took away this pre-clearance requirement that required places like Texas with a history of voter suppression to submit any voting changes to the DOJ to get them approved. The DOJ really did not turn down a lot of submitted voter changes because when you have to ask somebody before you do something bad, you're just not going to do the bad thing because you would have to ask and have it on the record. And so this like voter suppression seatbelt was just gone all across the United States. And the vote suppressors who had been dying for this day to happen started passing laws immediately. And the next day, the day after Shelby County came down, Texas enacted a voting rights or voter ID law that had been illegal the day before. And wait, it was literally that immediate, that immediate. They were ready. Wow. This is part of the project to control the courts is the courts had signaled in an earlier decision that, you know, John Roberts had written or one of the conservative justices had written a little like post-it note in there that said, hey, we think this formula is outdated and we might get rid of it. So all across the country, people who had helped put those people on the court said, all right, time to load it up. I mean, they did that in North Carolina. 
there were truly like all across the United States, it was the next day things that had been illegal or would have been considered illegal the day before were enacted. And that's why Texas had a photo ID law says you have to have photo ID. Even the Fifth Circuit, which is very conservative, said this photo ID law is racist. So now we have this kind of like mishmash law that's like a photo ID plus the solution that they came up with to satisfy the court that is very confusing. And that's honestly, I think, probably fine with the people who suppress the vote. I think that the more the confusing confusion. it is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The confusion is the yeah, point. the barriers there. Well, yeah. right, because that confusion, I'm sorry, I'm going to just yeah, hop in okay. a little bit on that. Because I think the confusion, in my mind, what that creates is a sense of anxiety, right, and fear. Like mm -hmm. if, if you're confused, and the worry is that there's going to be some sort of legal consequence that is scary. Yes. Right? And in Texas, we have leadership that wants you to be afraid. They want you to know that they are going to chase down any innocent election mistake. And it is very rare that they get a conviction, but they are always going to seek it. And that makes people scared. Sure. The confusion is always the point to me. And if people have a misconception about the law, but they also work a job and have a family, they don't have time to clear up a misconception about the law. And why would they? Course, only, right. only us nerds have time to really dig in and clear up that misconception about the law. And regular folks like my mom are just going to work and, you know, living their lives and with these misconceptions just deeply internalized that keep them out of the polling place. <sighs> Not great. <laughs> no. but Not I was going to just rewind a few steps. Please. Back to the Shelby versus Holder case. So you said that Chief Justice Roberts basically said racism is not a problem anymore. <laughs> exactly. But what was yep. this based on? I'm just curious. What was his thought process based on? From what I remember from law school. So, you know, forgive me to my professors if they ever hear this. But what I recall, so the Voting Rights Act, this formula that had States, there were entire states that were covered that had to submit these voting changes to the DOJ. And then there were counties. And if you go like a certain number of years without people finding voter discrimination in your county or state, then you can get removed from this list. And there were counties that had actually gotten removed from this list. There were areas that had been like, okay, you're rehabilitated. There was a process for if racism actually was over, which we all know it never is. But what John Roberts was saying is this formula is outdated. But there was a process for if the formula was outdated within the formula. And the Voting Rights Act kept coming up before Congress. They kept reauthorizing it. And during the Bush administration, they reauthorized this formula within the Voting Rights Act 98 to 0 in the Senate. Nobody voted against it. And the two people who were going to vote against it abstained because it's too embarrassing to say you're against voting rights, which was a different time, in many ways a worse time. But I do long for that one particular aspect where people were embarrassed to be against voting. And I think Chief Justice Roberts thought that Congress should have updated the formula, even though the formula was self-updating. Okay, it. and can we also underline another point to all of this. Well, actually, this is a question. I'm not assuming anything. <laughs> let me help my, let me stop myself <laughs> from making an assumption. But so he removed the formula because he felt like it was outdated, but there wasn't anything that replaced, right? Because you Correct. can't legislate from the bench like that. So it's just gone. 
And then yeah. Congress didn't do anything to replace what had been there. Sounds like. Yeah. And hadn't before anyway. Okay. Right. The one word for word quote that I remember from law school is in that case is in Shelby County, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her dissent said, getting rid of the Voting Rights Act formula because there is less racial voter suppression is like getting rid of your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. Things had improved for voters, especially Black voters in the South, over the course of the years with the Voting Rights Act in its full power. And that is because of the Voting Rights Act and this formula that required preclearance. The Voting Rights Act is still technically law. You know, the Supreme Court especially is doing its best to punch big white holes in it. But this one particular pointed aspect of the law was what was creating that progress. And since then, we have seen regress. It has happened exactly as Ruth Bader Ginsburg said it would. Yeah, Yeah. she's so right. I mean, yeah, it's like you had like, yeah, like a tool belt and you're like, "Ah, I don't need it anymore. Like, it's not going to break. It's fine. It's like, but it sounds like voting and politics and democracy needs you got to tune it up from time to time so you don't just exactly. you're not like, and we're done. <laughs> yeah, we did it. We solved, you know, there's no social problem that we're ever going to be like, we solved it. It's gone. They just morph and we try to fix the morphed version of it. Then it morphs to something else. Hopefully it gets smaller, but these things don't really go away. And you would think that the chief justice of the highest court in the land would understand that. Well, the other thing, the evidence to me is in the response, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that the very next day, you know what you're saying across the nation, and obviously in Texas, things were enacted that clearly the day before would have been considered illegal says everything. Like it says everything. Texas has closed 750 polling places since 2013. In 2012, we had one polling place per 4,000 Texans, which is crazy, not a good number. In 2018, we had one polling place per 7,700 Texans, almost double that person to polling place ratio. And all of these are in Black and Brown and Latinx communities. It's not a coincidence where these polling places are closing, who is being disenfranchised, who is having to walk or attempt public transit in Texas to get to their polling place that used to be around the corner. I think this is a good, we're already getting into it, but to really segue into voter suppression and what that actually looks like. Because I think for some people, I can even be guilty of this. I always vote during early voting. It's never too busy. Just pop in there, get it done, and I leave. So Mm -hmm. I could see how someone like me would be like, what do you mean voter suppression's happening? This is not a problem for me. But what does it actually look like for the folks that you're interacting with and that y'all are working with? Yeah. Time for my company mandated shameless plug. When we are working on the 866 Our Vote hotline, which provides nonpartisan customer service to all voters, Texas puts in place all of these hurdles. And I love working on the hotline, you know, non corporate voice time. I really love working to solve issues for folks from the hotline because there is a way to counteract the hurdles with knowledge. There's a way that I can help you jump over these hurdles. And I love that the hotline is really like accessible and helpful for jumping over those hurdles. And the way it works to me is the hurdles start long, long before you can ever cast a ballot or even know where your polling place is. For voter registration in Texas, we only use paper registration, which is really annoying to have to try to find paper voter registration in Texas. 
if you are a voter registrar, somebody who can hand out that paper registration and then go deliver it directly to the county. First, you have to be certified as a voter registrar to do that. Second, you can only be certified in one county per, you know, you have to get certified in each county, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So I'm certified in Travis County. I can go to Harris County and say, will you please give me reciprocal voter registrar status? I will probably have to fill out a form. They are supposed to do it automatically. There are 254 counties in Texas. And if I, like at college at UNT, for example, in Denton, people might live in Denton. They might live in Collin County. They might live in any of the DFW counties and go to your school. So if you want to be a voter registrar on campus, you have to get certified in all of those counties. Once you've filled out your paper registration, it has to be manually entered by people at the county elections office. It doesn't automatically go into a database. And you can get typos. You can get like a box on a form that wasn't checked. And so your voter registration doesn't go through and they have to reach back out to you. And all this has to be done 30 days before the election, which is the farthest out that federal law allows the voter registration deadline to be. There are a lot of places you can go in and on the very same day that you vote, you can change or update or fill out a first time registration. I had a woman from Louisiana show me that they have an app they can do it in. Louisiana has an app. What is Texas's excuse? And then there are things like polling places closing down. If you are used to voting at the community center around the corner and that community center drops off the voting list, the polling places list, you have to figure out where the next one is. Most counties list that on their website. They are required to by law. Most of them comply, but you have to go find that. That's something you have to Google in your own time. Things like you cannot use your phone in the polling place, which has a lot of good things to it, right? You know, I don't want to be recorded while I'm casting my ballot. I don't want to be, you know, filmed in the polling place. But I have to fill out my sample ballot on paper or write down who I want to vote for before I go into the polling place and take a piece of paper in. All these things that, you know, in a vacuum, you should say, well, yeah, if you really care about voting, you wouldn't mind writing it down even in Harris County, where you have 80 races on your ballot. But if you really cared about voting, you wouldn't mind writing it down. But once you start stacking those up, it's hours and hours of work just to get you in the polling place for one election. If you don't have a photo ID, which many people don't, specifically in Texas, it is black and brown people who don't have a photo ID, which is why the strict photo ID law was struck down by the court. Texas says, oh, well, you can get a one-time election ID certificate as your photo ID if you want, if you really want to. You have to go to the DMV. You have to get a DPS appointment. You have to go to that appointment at a deeply inconvenient time. You have to sit in the uncomfortable waiting room on the uncomfortable plastic chair, take a day off work, or take an hour off work even, things like that. It all just adds up. And I think that vote suppressors think they have this great, like, plausible deniability where they could go, well, if you really cared about voting, you would do that. But you shouldn't have to care this much Mm -hmm. to participate and to use your constitutional given right to cast your ballot. Yeah, it sounds like death by a thousand cuts. It really is. That's exactly right. And everything (laughs) is so wildly specific right? It's just like, it's Mm -hmm. so tiny. These details are so bizarre and small and little, but you're exactly right. They stack up to where once again, I feel like as I'm listening, I'm starting to get a headache, honestly. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) 
Oh my God, I can't keep track of it all. You know, it's just, it's a lot. It's a whole lot. And again, I'm saying it as somebody who couldn't be easier for me, right? I'm, (laughs) I would be considered a very privileged person and my mind is about to explode. (laughs) I have a super basic question. Let's go. And it's one of those, it's like, I hesitate to ask it because I'm a little embarrassed that I have to ask. But how do I even want to say this? The issue of black and brown people not having photo identification Mm -hmm. as often as their white counterparts. Is there an answer for why that is the case? Or what's that about? It is not a stupid. It's not a basic question. It is something that I think the state relies on a lot of people not believing it when they hear that. And I love to debunk things like that. So thank you for asking it. It is a lot of different factors. There is, of course, like structural poverty in America. Going back to 1619, poverty in America has been born largely by black folks and brown folks in our country. And because it costs money to get an ID, it's just basic. Like I went and got my driver's license renewed. It cost me $33. That doesn't feel like a lot to me. Well, it did actually. I was like, $33? I had to come to you. But it's not insurmountable to me. But if it is between $33 for my kid's lunch or $33 for my photo ID, especially if I don't drive, which a lot of folks who are living beneath the poverty line don't drive, it's easy. I'm paying my kid's school lunch every time. And I think that like it's one of those perpetuating problems where poverty in America, born by black and brown people, so anything that costs money, is harder to access for black and brown people. I think that there is an interaction between like folks who don't drive and black and brown people tend to often live in cities, big cities, big areas that actually do have public transit. It's also really hard to like deal with public transit in Texas. We have some of the worst public transit in all of United States. Arlington, Texas is the biggest city in the United States that does not have a public transit system. And I will be yelling about that until the day I die or until the day they get public transit, I guess. And those are the reasons that I know about that I can articulate. I'm sure there are many more than <laughs> Well, now it, but makes, I think it's, yeah. Yeah, makes so much sense. And also what you pointed out before, too, which is something, yeah, that I had to remind myself of is yeah, renewing my license or when I got it for the first time, it is a whole event, right? It does take Mm -hmm. time and it's a sign-up process and it's a waiting process. And so there's also just navigating that system and having the time and the space to do that. If, you know, imagine if, yeah, you worked and taking time off means that you're losing part of your pay. Exactly. Right? What's that trade-off? You're also paying to get that identification and you're losing money because you're not at work during that time. Like, yeah, that's right. That's a lot that you're yes. having to contend with. And I do want to note that in Texas, you don't have to have that photo ID. If you have one of those photo IDs, you have to bring it and use it to check in to vote. But if you don't, you can sign a reasonable impediment declaration, which is a document they have at every polling place in Texas that says, here's the reason that I could not get a photo ID. And it's one of seven things, but they're incredibly broad. Things like family responsibilities, things like lack of transportation, work schedule, all the way to specific things like my ID was lost or stolen. That's why I don't have it. And if you fill out that reasonable impediment declaration, sign the document, then you can use a non-photo ID like your utility bill, anything issued by the state that has your name and address on it. Mm. The address doesn't have to match where you live or where you're registered, rather. Your ID is to prove your identity, not your residency. 
You can use an expired ID, any ID that's expired up to four years if you're under 70 and for any length of time if you're over 70 years old. But these are super wonky things that it's taken me four years of working in voting rights every day to learn to rattle these off and that I would never know if I were not paid to know this. <laughs> Right. Like there is an exception, but you have to know the exception and Mm -hmm. come prepared with this other documentation that somehow, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm also thinking if you are being deeply affected, I'll say, by poverty, Mm -hmm. are you going to have access to a utility bill in your name? Mm -hmm. Like, really? Yeah. You could also use your voter registration certificate that they mail you, but mail gets lost and is hard to find. And, you know, Things like that. Out-of-state IDs also require, even if it's a photo ID, require a reasonable impediment declaration. And I know that. But a lot of the poll workers, I love poll workers. They are awesome. I think they are like some of our greatest heroes in America right now, especially just like this current election climate. But I think that poll workers are often regular people who don't work in voting rights, almost always, right? You know, some a retiree or somebody taking a day off work because they care about this, but they're not as steeped in election law. So every year we get calls saying they won't let me use my out-of-state ID. And it's almost always a good faith mistake by somebody who has not been trained in every possible like corner of voting rights in Texas. Wow. So as we're talking about this, it's making me <laughs> curious. What is the argument for making voting harder? That is a very good question. And I am going to do my best to put on the hat of somebody who would say that. I think it really, other than people who want to preserve power, people who were elected by the people who have always been voting and therefore want only those people to keep voting forever so they keep electing that person, I think that the argument for making voting harder is to make sure that people who go to vote like care about it, care about their democracy. But it is people with a lot of free time making that argument. And this is something that I believe, I don't know if this is like universal, this is not a TCRP opinion, TM, but I don't think that time spent on something necessarily correlates to how much you care about it, right? Like you can care a lot about democracy and also about your family and about your job or jobs, plural. And going to vote is the thing that shows that you care. Trying to cast that ballot is the thing that shows that you care. Not all of these, all this time spent jumping through these unreasonable hoops all along the way. That is the best I can do. There might be a better answer, but I honestly can't understand why anyone would want to make voting harder. So I'm... I'm probably not giving that the best answer. No, it's okay. I'm just thinking, I feel like there's people in my life who would say Mm -hmm. we should be making it harder. You know, like you're saying, if you really do care about this, about the direction our country is going to take, you better jump through those hoops. (laughs) And it almost seems like a philosophical difference, I suppose, than anything. We hear a lot about voter apathy in Texas, right? Like every time the voter turnout is lower than they think it's going to be, or the voter turnout even just on one side for one party or the other is lower. They're like, oh, well, why don't voters in Texas care? You can find all kinds of headlines. But my friend Alex Burnell, who works at Move Texas, loves to talk about how we don't, we put the burden on the voter, but it's not apathy. That is a created condition of our system that makes the voter come to the institution. 
But in India, in the 2019 election, they set a goal of having a polling place within 1.25 miles of every single voter in India. There are these great pictures from Reuters of Indian election workers hiking into the mountains. They helicoptered in to serve a polling place of 16 voters, of 49 voters. They are bringing the elections to the people. And you don't hear stories about voter apathy out there because it's incumbent on the government to take the voting to the people, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, just like if I'm, you know, Luckily, I'm engaged, but, you know, if I was dating and I was like, ugh, well, men are just apathetic about me because they are not coming to me and I haven't left my house in 15 weeks, which would be my preference always, that's not a problem (laughs) with men. That is a problem with me sitting on my couch, you know, not putting myself out there. Like, there's just no other situation where we're like, oh, people are so apathetic when you're not reaching out to the people that you claim are so don't care enough. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, it just, yeah, there's so many really great, actually, metaphors like you're just discussing. It's like, yeah, we expect people to like pursue and pursue and pursue. It's also like, I don't, what does that even look like? This version of caring enough, like you sleep outside polling places for the week before an election and that shows you really care. Like what in the world do people have to do? I mean, it's just, it's. Fascinating. Also, Fascinating. like, caring is not a prerequisite to voting. If you, like, made people fill out a form about how much they care, like, nobody would be like, oh, you gotta care real hard to get in this polling place. Like, it's just not logical. It doesn't make yeah. any sense to me. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll read, like, some whatever entrepreneurial books or business books, and they're all about figuring out how to make people do the thing you want them to do. And nine times out of 10, it's about just removing the points of friction. Like if you just make it easier for people, they're going to be, they're more likely to get on board and develop that habit. And it's like, why aren't we following the advice of our dear, you know, capitalists and entrepreneurs? I'm telling you, Texas gets all the worst of capitalism. Like why aren't we taking the benefits of capitalism, which creates a frictionless path between person and the thing they're buying? Like, if I had to fill out a form to get a hamburger, and I could only get a hamburger between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. on these 10 days, I would never eat a hamburger. Because that's not how anything works. Right. Fascinating. Yeah, we need some economists to, like, get in there and be like, what behavior are we trying to encourage? And what behavior are we trying to discourage? But there it we is, need to be honest though. about what that, we're doing. There, yeah. there's the answer, right? Mm-hmm. It's exactly what behavior are we trying to discourage? Nice. I'm so glad you guys agree. I always feel a little bit tinfoil hat about this because I care a lot about it. Although it would be fine if I didn't care. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Opposing point of view. We must always present yes. those. <laughs> so let's circle back and talk a little bit about those and misconceptions mm-hmm. that are out there. As you were saying, I do personally believe that there is, I don't know if I'm going to call it apathy, but maybe some cynicism towards voting sure. that people have. Especially if you live in a very red area or a very blue area and you're like, I mean, really, does my vote count? Because it always goes to this party or that party. Mm-hmm. How do you guys overcome that type of thinking? Yeah, this is my friend Amber Mills, also of Move Texas, has a great, asked her about this. I was like, what do you do when you're registering voters and they say that my vote doesn't matter? And she talked a lot about how there are really, really close races all the time, especially at the local level. There are places that your one vote makes a huge difference. 
you know, 25 votes of you and your 24 friends that you talked to and you all agreed that voting doesn't matter, those votes will sway an election one way or another in people who are actually doing stuff in your community. People who are deciding, you know, where the resources are allocated that you pay, you know, your local taxes for. I also think that voting, and again, something Amber said to me, voting is an act of community care. This is something that, like, I know that this is not, you know, your vote matters, definitely. But as a personal value, I want to show my community that I care about them. And I go in and I cast my ballot because I believe that I'm voting for what is best for my community. And I can tell my friends, I can tell my family, like, I actually voted for this proposition because it matters to me that people are not incarcerated for being homeless. It matters to me that people are not incarcerated for, you know, say a small amount of drugs that, you know, traditionally white people have gotten away with having and black and brown people have been incarcerated for having. And I think it does matter to show people that you went in and did one of the only proactive things we can do to change our democracy because it matters to you what happens in your community. The other thing, Claire, I'm reminded of the conversation we had with Dr. Young. So Emily, we had a guest on who is a member of the State Board of Education. Mm -hmm. And actually, this was the election, though, when she was trustee of her local ISD, Apple Springs. And she tied with a young man uh, for her seat on the school board, and they won by three votes. Right. So I just want to underline, like, you're exactly right. And a lot of these local races, it really can come down to very, very few votes. So your vote right. does matter. Oh, I'm going to repeat that story. Yeah. And it's also like, I guess, a butterfly effect. Like she was able to serve on the school board and I'm sure that helped propel her to the State Board of Education. So it puts people on paths they might have never been on had they not won or lost, but they can't do it themselves. They have to do it with the voter, with voters saying, yeah or no. <laughs> right. And even if your candidate loses, you've sent a message to the other candidate, right? By not voting for them. You've said, hey, I didn't like what you did in the last legislative session. You have never worried about your seat. Now you're worried. Now the next two years might not go the way that you thought they were going to go because I've sent you a message, even though that, you know, you didn't ultimately get exactly what you voted for. You've signaled your disapproval of the person in office. There's another echo. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Because we talked about redefining winning and how mm -hmm. if you can shape the conversation, that's a victory too. And mm -hmm. something that I have gotten tired of is feeling like we're not having the right conversations. So mm -hmm. yeah, if you can help with that. Yeah. And later in this series, this election series, we're going to speak to some women who their whole mission is to help folks run Democrats run in very red rural districts where traditionally Ooh. they do not win. And I think it's important to have that conversation with them because, you know, it's a long shot them winning or not, but it's that mm -hmm. idea of reframing winning. It's letting people know you do have another option. And with that person just being in the race, you're going to change the conversation and hopefully open up to more people and more people will be interested in just getting involved and throwing in their two cents which really oh, needs yeah. to happen because in too many races, there is no opposition and that is not good for any of us, whether it's opposite, just, we just need, we need a variety of voices, period. You know, mm -hmm. not like all oh, this party or all that party. We just yeah. need dialogue. I would have killed for that growing up in Wichita Falls where I didn't know a progressive, truly like I didn't know people 
felt the other way until probably high school. And I really wish that I had been exposed to more viewpoints, that somebody had run really publicly in my district, that my family had talked about it around the dinner table. And I think that I still have a little bit of pull, not as much as I did maybe when I was 18, but with folks that, you know, are longtime family friends. I might be the only person who talks to them about why actually there is no evidence of voter fraud. So any law predicated on voter fraud is probably not being honest with you about why it exists. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of going back in time and our youth, so I'm interested in what high school students are learning. Do you know what is required of them that they have to learn regarding civics education? This is kind of a messy question, but I hope no, you I like understand it. what I'm saying. I don't know for sure what is required in civics education, but I do know that there is a state law in Texas, one of the few, you know, crazy good things that we have that requires every single high school in Texas to extend voter registration to their eligible seniors twice a year. It can either be an outside registrar that they bring in or somebody who's deputized at the school, a principal, a vice principal, you know, the civics teacher to extend that to those students, which naturally starts a conversation about, well, okay, why do you want me to fill out this form? What am I getting out of this voter registration other than like one more piece of mail, which I don't even know if Gen Zers like mail. (laughs) I get stressed out by mail, but that's (laughs) my piles right there. (laughs) I know, right? It's a good way for the teachers to start that conversation with students, and it's required by law. Do we have great compliance rates with that law in Texas? We sure don't. But I have met a lot of high school students, high school teachers, and voter registrars, especially with the League of Women Voters, who care a lot about this, and Voto Latino, and all of these organizations that are working to make sure students are getting that opportunity that is their right by law. Do you know, I'm just curious, when these school districts are figuring out how they're going to get their students the opportunity to register to vote, who's actually doing that? Is it like the principals or I'm just curious? Anecdotally, I've not done a ton of work on high school voter registration, but in my experience, it's either one student or a group of students or one teacher or a group of teachers who really care about voting. And, you know, not to be biased because of my English degree, but I think a lot of times it is either a history or an English teacher who teaches, you know, you talk through your kids about To Kill a Mockingbird and all of these great books that you read, and then you want to give them the opportunity to live out those values. It's not standardized whether it comes from the principal or a certain person in the school district, but it is every school district is notified of their right and obligation to do this by the Secretary of State of Texas every year. So the principals at least know that that is something they are supposed to do. That's interesting. Yeah, I felt like, Emily, you finally got to where I think Claire was like going, which is (laughs) trying to discover if it was standardized. And it sounds like it is not. It is very willy nilly. Like on every campus, it could be different. The person who actually makes sure that it's happening or there's nobody making sure that it's happening. That person can be different from one place to another. And okay. It's an email in the inbox of the principal at the very least, but it's typically not driven that way. Yeah. Like if you're going to have these rules or policies or whatever it is for people, surely you have some sort of a, and this is how you're going to accomplish that. But it sounds like there isn't that standardization. So then I'm like, well, who's doing it? How do you know they're doing it? (laughs) It is not currently a priority of our Texas Secretary of State who co-defended a lawsuit in Pennsylvania 
for Donald Trump alleging election fraud that didn't exist. So that's a fun thing that our Secretary of State has in his little resume. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I can't imagine why he's not excited about getting the next generation to vote. <laughs> <laughs> because fraud is everywhere. Even in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. you got to go all mm-hmm. the way up there. All the way up there and then find it inside your head where you made it up. <laughs> So now we're going to look into our crystal ball. Where do you see Texas going as far as voter participation is concerned? Is it getting better? Do you think it's getting worse? I think it's getting better. Texas, I personally did not work in Texas voting rights till 2018, but I have seen more and more people getting more engaged. The youth voter movement in Texas is booming. Gen Zers are voting in Texas like at a rate no other generation has ever voted especially at their age. Texas is a majority minority state now. It is continuing to grow as a majority minority state. Can you explain that quickly just for folks who might be curious? Texas is now made up of a greater percentage of people of color, Black, Latinx, Asian American folks than it is of white people. So white people are now in the minority. And I don't believe that there is any one BIPOC group that is in the majority, but as a group, there are more BIPOC folks in Texas now than there are white folks. And it is booming the population, especially BIPOC folks. And I do think the voter suppression is going to keep getting worse, or they are going to keep attempting to make it worse. They can gerrymander the district's pretty heavily, which they did. People of color actually lost representation despite accounting for something like 90% of our population growth. But there's only so much they can do. The dam is going to break at some point. There's only so much that people who want to stop voters can do. And Texas doesn't have any sign of slowing down in terms of the voting electorate changing. And my voting rights retreat this week with TCRP and my colleagues, we called it, somebody called it reckless optimism. Somebody else called it hopeless optimism, which I thought was funny. But somewhere in between there is the truth that Texas cannot stay suppressed forever. And at some point, the dam is going to break and they're going to have to come up with some new devious way of getting what they want if it's not what the people of Texas are asking for. Yeah, I wonder, too, as we're having so many folks relocate here and they realize the system that we have in place and perhaps they're used to different, better systems, easier systems in other states that they will start speaking up and saying, mm-hmm. back where I lived, it wasn't this hard. So I guess to transit to make that a question, if people hear this episode and they're like, man, I do not like what is being done and I don't want to see further voter suppression happen, how can they have their voice heard and let their representatives know that? (laughs) That is a great question. The legislative session runs from January to May of every odd numbered year. So, you know, hopefully they sometimes call special sessions because they don't get the voter suppression they want in those five to six months. But when legislation is coming out, calling your representative, following organizations like Move Texas, Texas Civil Rights Project, Texas Freedom Network, all of these folks who are talking about what the laws are, following those, reacting to laws you don't like. I am also a somewhat nerdy and very big proponent of getting involved with your local county commissioner's court. County commissioners answer to you. There are not that many in each county. They have to answer to their residents. A lot of times they live not too far from where you live. They shop at the same grocery stores that you do, and they are the ones who set 
the polling locations. They are the ones who set the funding for your local elections department. If you're mad about these things, you can truly like email or call your county commissioner's office. They will probably meet with you. I can't speak for every commissioner in the state of Texas, but they are your neighbors. They answer directly to you in these like small margin, oftentimes local elections that we're talking about. And I think you can impact a ton of policy. And that's just on elections. There's all kinds of education stuff they're in charge of. So many other policy areas, environmental things, like who gets to build what, where in your community, and whether that is based on environmental and racial justice. You know, they're not building the polluting factory in the poorest neighborhood in your county if you are able to reach out and, you know, speak up about it. Of course, this all requires a lot of time and attention. Not everyone is going to be able to put in that amount of time and attention. No one should have to put in that amount of time and attention. But I would say definitely get involved at the local level, especially with your county commissioners and your county judge. Yeah, I appreciate you calling that out. I feel like the county commissioner's court really flies under the radar and not (laughs) a lot of people pay attention to what they're doing, but they do have such a big impact on our everyday lives, like Mm -hmm. our roads. And yeah, like you were saying, like building development and things that we just a lot of times blame city hall on and they do have a hand in it. But somehow county commissioners, they just they're kind of like quiet over here doing their own thing. Yeah. And I think Mm -hmm. some of them like that. But, you know, we're still their boss as the electorate. We are still in charge of them. So absolutely. Nicole, do you have any outstanding questions before we move on to our last piece? of the interview? I don't. Yeah, but no, I'm going to start paying attention to county commissioners. That's a little takeaway I'll I'll share before we move on to our last bit. Yeah, well, we didn't prepare you for this, Emily, but hopefully it'll be fun (laughs) nonetheless. So when we wrap up, we like to do our little segment called Attention Mentions, where we mention something that has our attention. So like a show you've been watching, a book you've read, an article, maybe a unique experience you had recently. And it's just a fun way to send you off and give our listeners something to go seek out if they're interested. So does anything come to mind for you or do you want us to come back? Yes, actually, I spend way too much time watching TV and movies. And I have recently finished up Better Call Saul. But as an attorney on this podcast, I feel like I should not recommend that because I don't (laughs) want you guys to think that I am ambulance chasing in the same exact way that Saul is. I've watched Miss Marvel recently on Disney+. Plus. I was like a Marvel kid in college. I'm sure I seem way too cool to have been into that stuff. But I had been getting some fatigue with the big punchy, like oh, they're fighting on public transportation again. Wow, I wonder if this bus is going to get caught in half. Like, very (laughs) tired of that kind of thing. And watching Miss Marvel completely, like, took a defibrillator to my fatigue because it's about a Pakistani-American young woman, and it goes into her, like, family generational trauma and talked about partition, which was something that I didn't know very much about. And it's visually like gorgeous. There's like, you know, neon colors and lasers and all these things that you haven't really seen in a lot of these movies. And I was just so interested in the story it was telling, so charmed by every single member of the cast. And, you know, unfortunately, will continue to put my money into the Marvel industrial complex forever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one to hear about. I've not seen it. And that sounds like something I would actually enjoy. 
Yes. You do not have to do all the Marvel homework to enjoy it. I will say that. Well, I wouldn't. (laughs) So uh, that's good. (laughs) I can't recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, nice. I'll have to check that out. That sounds great. Mm -hmm. Sounds delightful. Do you have yours, Claire? Yeah, it's kind of silly, but it has my attention. So I'll say it. I've been watching Selling the OC on Netflix, which is ridiculous and delightful and you know like real estate porn like these houses are insane (laughs) they're like 10 million dollars plus and this gorgeous you know coastal california but it's nice because it's a short season they're like 20 minutes and it's not serious sometimes you need the ridiculous to kind of balance out the heaviness of life so you need women in tiny tiny stiletto heels pushing back doors that are like five times their size on the edge of I'm a like, California home. How do you do that? How do you wear that? <laughs> <laughs> Everything about it. I actually have on five inch stilettos right now. I thought you guys would also. <laughs> I had a feeling. <laughs> okay, I'll round it out and I'll stay kind of in, in the wheelhouse of everyone here. I actually, oh no, I'm going to change it at the last minute, you guys, <laughs> which is a show delightful feels like a little bit of a theme going on here so i'm going to stick with delightful although i don't know if you said that about selling sunset claire or it's like sorry selling the guilty OC. delight yeah. yeah i mean they're all yeah I, this I, is just, I watched them all i hear <laughs> that great. I, they are fun okay but i am changing gears but delightful is the continuing theme that i made up and it is for abbott elementary have you guys watched that <laughs> oh my goodness Love. yes it's so hilarious It's so So hilarious. So Abbott Elementary, so fun to watch. And I watched it or yeah, watch it on Hulu. It's they got renewed. So you can get into it, folks. But it's it's on ABC and also on Hulu. Oh, I think it's on Disney Plus Plus too. Yeah. Oh, I know. That show is so great. It's I somehow missed it. And then was looking at all the Emmy nominations and it was on there. And I was like, I should maybe check this out. And yeah, so funny. It's so, like so one of those all-time great sitcoms already. You can just tell, like, put it in the pantheon. Yep. Yep. Love Quinta Brunson so much. So funny. Well, thank you for your recommendation, Emily. I'm going to check out that show later this week. And thank you so much for sharing more with us about what voting really looks like here in Texas and a little bit of the history. And of course, we have to tell all of our listeners, don't forget to vote. It's coming up November 8th. So mark your calendar or, you know, vote beforehand during early voting if you can make that happen. And tell us one more time, what was the name of the hotline if you have any issues with voting? If you have any issues with voting, call 866-OUR-VOTE. We are nonpartisan. It's staffed all during early voting and on election day. We have a bunch of lawyers and all they want to do is help you solve your election problem, even if it's something as small as like, hey, where am I supposed to go vote? If you're just like driving in the car, you don't want to Google it, call the hotline. We will Google it for you and we would be thrilled to. No problem too big, no problem too small. Call 866-OUR-VOTE and you might talk to me also, which would be fun for me. Oh, perfect. We'll make sure that's in the episode description. So (laughs) yeah, although that's very easy to remember. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. 
Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.